The NFL's Super Wild Card Weekend more than lived up to its name, and we break down the many happenings of the league's first set of playoff games. It's Tuesday, January 16th, and I'm Eric Fisher. This is Front Office Sports Today. NFL Super Wild Card Weekend has absolutely lived up to its name with the wildness. Uh, we've had re- uh, record cold. We've had postponed games because of snow, cracked helmets, streaming records, uh, a huge road victory by the NFC's lowest seed. You name it, we pretty much have seen it here. Um, and uh, the Wild Card Weekend has really lived up to its name. Uh, I want to welcome in my uh, newsletter uh, co-author partner here, David Rumsey. Uh, you've been looking at this a, a lot as well, particularly the peacock angle of this uh let's sort of start big picture here what's been your takeaway from wildcard weekend yeah absolutely you know if you're a daily subscriber to the fos newsletter on saturday we had a nice deep dive on peacock and the nfl's streaming efforts and uh, just a lot of uproar from fans but it turns out that you know people might have been upset but they watched because 23 million people tuned in to watch uh, the chiefs take down the dolphins that became the most streamed event in U.S. history, perhaps not too surprising given that it's the NFL and it's a playoff game and it's Patrick Mahomes and Taylor Swift was there as well. But that just shows the power of the NFL, right, Eric? Yeah, and, and the visuals were great. I, I you, know, you have to give NBC and Peacock and Rick Cordell and his team a lot of credit. Um, you know, I, I watched and, you know, the um, – and a lot of the reports I got is that the quality was very smooth. Now, again, we've been, you know, in the 2024, we should expect a nice clean stream, but it actually was, and it really survived at scale and um, visuals were great. Um, the, the record is kind of interesting that, yes, it's a new U.S. standard, still less than half of the global record that, you know, we wrote last fall about a cricket, uh, the final of the ICC World Cup did uh, 59 million concurrent. So as powerful as the NFL is, we still got a ways to go on a global scale. Um, but turning to the Buffalo situation, uh, they really made the right call here. Uh you know, I've spent a lot of time in Buffalo over the years and went to school out that way. Uh, this lake effect snow was no joke. And there were driving bands, a very localized band. But within that immediate Orchard Park, Southtown's Buffalo area, you just couldn't get around. And they're still digging out. And um, they really made the right call here. Yeah, obviously, it's about fan safety. I, I love those videos uh, ahead of the game with those fans who are shoveling for $20 an hour at Highmark Stadium, having a little bit of fun, going down some slides uh, and getting the stadium ready for the fans uh, that did get there on Monday night. And looking ahead to some of the markets here, uh, you know, I think uh, the NFL and its TV partners, uh, particularly Fox, would love to have the Cowboys still involved here. But there's a great story with that that statement the Green Bay Packers made and a similar situation that you would love to have on a certain level. The uh, L.A. market, number two uh, media market, and the Rams still in there. But the, this Detroit story is a huge one as well. Yeah. How about the Detroit Lions? Uh, first playoff win since 1992 at home, no less, with Eminem in the stands. They're going to do it again on Sunday. And, you know, you just look back to Dan Campbell's opening press conference uh, three years ago, and he really, you know, took a beating from a lot of people on social media and in, in, 
on the networks. Uh, you know, he just didn't seem too polished or he's just crazy. And, you know, here they are, a winning record last year and then a division title this year. They're in the divisional round of the playoffs after taking down former quarterback Matt Stafford. I mean, just a, a, a perfect storyline uh, for Lions fans. And, I mean, can you imagine, Eric, if they were to reach the Super Bowl? I mean, that would just be unprecedented levels of pandemonium in a similar situation developing in Houston as well. This is another team that's been down on his luck and, uh, you know, we're still got a, a potential uh, family feud among the team ownership and the McNair family that we've been writing about. Uh, but on the field, this team is clearly hitting another level. Yeah. They kind of took down another uh, fan favorite on the other side of the conference with uh, the Cleveland Browns, similar to the lions. You've just been, mired in you know mediocrity or less for so many years uh, so I think there was a lot of unhappy fans in Cleveland but yeah Houston I mean CJ Stroud is just uh, he's amazing to watch and uh, I don't think the Texans have ever made it out of the divisional round so they'll have a very important game coming up that would really elevate that franchise uh, that has you know, struggled to get to that, you know, really premier level since they entered the league uh, several decades ago. And never even having won a uh, divisional round game. So, yeah, they've, uh, uh, you know, been to, they've won four wild card games, uh, been to the divisional round, uh, obviously, after that, never have broken through. So, we've got a, a real opportunity to break some new ground for that Texans franchise. Well, we're going to be continuing to track that across uh, all of the FOS platforms, particularly the newsletter. But I want to thank my uh, partner, David Rumsey, for uh, stepping in with us here today. Thanks for having me, Eric. We are in the midst of soccer's international transfer window, where clubs sell some of their most valuable players to other teams around the world. Where Kylian Mbappe set a record transfer fee. Are Everton and Manchester City's financial fair play violations going to affect transfers into the Premier League? We answer all that and more with soccer commentator and reporter Ben Jacobs after this. Now very pleased to be joined by sports broadcaster Ben Jacobs. Welcome, Ben. Great to be back. Happy New Year to everyone. Yeah, great to have you back on. So we are currently in the transfer window uh, for, for for every major soccer league, where we you know players can be sold or loaned out uh, to other clubs. Right now, you know the the biggest attention is on Kylian Mbappe, who may or may not leave Paris Saint Germain. Uh, but how will his decision affect the balance of power in European soccer? Well, I think the balance of power in European soccer can be judged more financially. And therefore, and ironically, you could make an argument that signing Kylian Mbappe has a positive brand and football impact, but is negative in the financial column. So you've got to be able to afford Mbappe. And that is ultimately, even on a free transfer, a challenge for Real Madrid because a free transfer is never free. There's always a signing on fee, agent fees, and anything else affiliated to the deal. And if you know you're free, you're going to perhaps ask for more on the player side. But clearly, whoever has Mbappe, both in terms of club and league, becomes more marketable. And it's almost as important for Ligue 1 to hold on to Mbappe as it is for PSG. Maybe even more so as you look at the global television rights. And it's the same for La Liga, that Messi and Ronaldo was a package and a rivalry regardless of what the clubs think and the players think, the league are able to kind of dine off it and exploit that commercially. So signing Mbappe becomes for La Liga 
and also for Real Madrid as well. So the power of Mbappe is that he's an elite superstar that transcends football and brings commercial worth. And that, I think, is fascinating from a business point of view because it's the club paying for it. So they need to stay within financial fair play. And they also are contingent on the superstar succeeding. And that hasn't always been the case. Look at Neymar. He had a very mixed time, for example, at PSG. But the league almost get a free pass here in many ways because if the clubs succeed in signing Mbappe or if he stays at PSG or if he moves to the Premier League, then the league gets instant benefit and boost without really paying for anything, not directly anyway, but television rights go up, commercial opportunities go up, intrigue goes up, attendances go up. And before you know it, the actual benefit of Mbappe is very broad, even though it's only one club signing him for the sole purpose of ultimately winning trophies. So I think that should Mbappe leave Real Madrid, it will, broadly speaking, help La Liga get a footing, which they had when they had Messi and Ronaldo. And then when both left, perhaps their global audience, perhaps their global income, perhaps their global appeal all diminish slightly. And with Mbappe and with Bellingham, you have the possibility to sort of rebuild that. And maybe on the Barcelona side, Jawa Felix will join. And then there's this young new generation of elite stars or potentially elite stars that can all go head to head again. So La Liga will be really desperate for Mbappe to join. But I think Mbappe doesn't make you the best team in the world. Maybe Mbappe and Bellingham does. But we still have to look, for example, at the Premier League as the biggest league. And we still have to look, I think anyway, regardless of where Mbappe goes, as Manchester City being the favourites to dominate in Europe. Mm-hmm. And because there are so many benefits to any league that gets him and, and you know, any major star, can they you know, put their finger on the scale in any way, you know, try to do something that makes it, you know, more logical or more financially feasible to to bring them in? Or is it is mostly just they hope that they get them and, you know, if, if they do, then great. And if they don't, they, they move on? Not necessarily. I mean, PSG argue with all costs considered, they're 100, maybe even 150 million US dollars up on Mbappe including wages, including any fees, including anything to agents, including any bonuses and other costs. So you can make money off the player, but you often have to have outlay first. And then the return is a bit more risk reward because it can come through prize money and success. It can come through longevity, but you don't really make as much as people imply through, for example, shirt sales or other things that you can just get immediately. So I think there's a perception that if, for example, somebody was to sign now, then there would be an influx of Mbappe shirt sales, and it would lead to getting a large amount of transfer fee and wages back. And that's not my understanding of how the actual finances work. It's a very small drop in the water as far as that type of instant return income is concerned. And obviously the players are very smart. So Messi's getting a part of the MLS income because he knows he's contributing to it. And in addition, Mbappe will know that shirt sales allow him to 
ask for a little bit more. Image rights, ask for more. Success, ask for more in the bonuses that you receive. So success can become expensive as far as paying out bonuses and things are concerned. And these kind of signings will never pay themselves back within a season or two. But the way that they end up paying themselves back is because as you get sustained success, with it comes brand growth, globalization, and that all allows you to bring in slower but very significant and steady streams of income that ultimately offset. And I think the last thing also to mention is that just because you've bought a player at X and paid a player X, the one thing you can't predict, especially with a young player, is if they'll go for X. So even if it feels like you're significantly in debt despite success because the player's asked for so much and has had so many bonuses, were they to leave, you may get a large proportion of that back. And this is why PSG was so angry with Mbappe over the summer because this notion of him leaving on a free, even though contractually he's entitled to do it, somehow in their mind betrayed the club. Whereas now there's a legally binding agreement between Mbappe and Kylian Mbappe's camp and PSG that says if he leaves on a free, he will actually forego bonuses, effectively paying from those wave bonuses PSG a form of, in inverted commas, fee or money back that he's owed. And now PSG feel like they've made this 100, 150 million from Kylian Mbappe, all costs considered. They said that they did the same with Lionel Messi, but the projection may be off Mbappe if he left was they needed to make 250 million to balance the books. And maybe that's also because they're going to move in the market for somebody else. So then this foregone bonuses mean that you can suddenly add another almost 100 million. It's more like 70, 80 million euros, I'm told. And then suddenly if Mbappe leaves, PSG are a bit calmer about the situation as a result of it. So it's not something that clubs want to plan for, the departure, because the whole point of signing a player like Mbappe from a business perspective is keeping him and having him during the peak. And you don't want to lose him from a football perspective or a brand perspective. But when they're young, if after four or five years, it might be the same for Erling Haaland and Manchester City, you decide it's the right time to sell, then you still have to think about that financially and weave into a contract or work into a negotiation strategy, a manner in which to get that money either back or in addition to any profit you've already made. So the player then becomes a commodity, not useful anymore on the football field, but from a business perspective, it's ensuring if you're going to shake hands and go in opposite directions, you're not out of pocket and where possible, you've made money. Mm -hmm. And this is the first transfer window since Everton was given a a 10-point penalty for financial fair play violations. And of course, you know, a number of the clubs Mbappe is rumored to be at least considering our Premier League clubs. What kind of effect does the, you know, the potential for more sanctions on other clubs, especially, you know, Manchester City, I think has the most attention on it. Chelsea is also being investigated. But, you know, many clubs, I think, could potentially be in danger here. So are we seeing, are our clubs being more conservative because of that, uh, you know, potential threat? I think clubs are waiting for the Manchester City verdict. That's probably fair 
to say. With Chelsea, there is no charges yet. They're simply being investigated. So we don't know whether anything will materialise there. And naturally, Everton as well is a very interesting case because it's the first one that's actually had a penalty. And if the Everton penalty is to be used as a yardstick, then even though they're totally different cases, how will that impact any potential Manchester City punishment as well? So we're going to have to wait a little bit to see the full impact and clubs are going to have to understand how robust the system is whether they're being investigated or not and there might be a more widespread clampdown and punishments for one club may set a precedent for another but the punishments are being handed out in the case of Everton and Manchester City by an independent panel so the Premier League are lobbying their side And then it's the panel that's deciding and that panel then can be appealed. So punishment doesn't mean anything is set in stone. It's the key step in a longer running process. And naturally, the Premier League are trying to show with an independent regulator on the horizon that they are capable of self-regulating and that they are capable of being both the governor of the league and the judiciary of the league. And I think that's normal at this point to be aggressive because deep down, even though they won't really have too much choice, the Premier League don't want the government regulator. They want to control everything themselves. So showing a robustness, showing a transparency, showing a desire to punish whether the clubs are big or small is all part of that. Uh, Last thing I wanted to touch on with you, uh, we're we're seeing this growing multi-club model where the same organization will own, you know, five, six, seven clubs, you know, across different countries, even different continents. And part of the motivation for that is that you can save money on on transfer fees because, you know, you're all kind of part of the same group. Um, are we seeing those effects here? And just w- broadly, what what kind of, um, yeah, how, how is that reshaping how things operate in, you know, across European soccer and perhaps global soccer? I think multi-club model creates a divide between big and small. And we've always felt like in the English Premier League, for example, that there's big clubs, small clubs. But now you have non-multi-club and multi-club. And if you're a big club in a multi-club model, then a small club or a smaller club finds it very difficult to compete. So either we're going to see the smaller clubs gobbled up in multi-club models and everyone will be part of one. And actually more clubs in the Premier League than people realise have affiliations and are within a model. People don't always understand that it's not just City Football Group and Bluco, which is Chelsea's new one with Strasbourg. It's also Brighton and Bournemouth with Bill Foley. He's, I think, about to buy a stake in Hibernian. He's in France. He's in the Premier League. So multi-club feels like the future. And the advantage of multi-club and how it's changing the industry is that it provides infrastructure and pathways. Every multi-club is different. Sometimes the pathways feed up to a big club and it's about developing players for that club and having consistent standards of coaching. Sometimes it's about commercial and brand and realizing that if you're multi-club with Manchester City at the top, everywhere you go becomes the city brand. So as you're trying to break into new markets and ultimately jump ahead of rivals that historically are more known, like Liverpool and Manchester United in Asia, your multi-club group model can help. Because if you are new, 
and you say, what's the best way, hypothetically, to pick a country at random of us breaking into India? Well, go and buy an Indian club. And then suddenly you're local all the time and all the fans of that club in India, if they're a well-supported club, will probably say, I'm going to support Man City or Chelsea or Liverpool because we are the Man City, Chelsea and Liverpool club. So on a very superficial level, you gain a fan base. But at the same time, multi-club can also be like Red Bull and can be about bringing players through to a level. But if they succeed, eventually they're going to be too big for the model and then they're going to be sold. And that is part of the model, that end fee that they get. Benjamin Sesko might be a good example. Christopher Nkunku to Chelsea was another one. So Chelsea's model is fascinating because it's a bit of both. Within Blueco, they have Chelsea. So of course they want players to go to Chelsea, but they're buying so much young talent that even if they believe in all that young talent, statistically, they're never all going to make it to Chelsea. So then you're trying to get low wages, long contracts, and view the transfer fee as an investment, not an expense, to the point where if you do sell them, and statistically they will sell plenty of players that never really make it at Chelsea, you're going to make money. And that money can be invested back into your group and your infrastructure. So multi-club gives you strength. It gives you globalization. It gives you commodities that you can sell if they fail. And it gives you footballers that can become iconic if you've got a lead club, a big club, should they succeed. And Chelsea are trying to do a bit of City Football Group and a bit of Red Bull together, which whether it marries and succeeds remains to be seen because footballers don't want to be seen as commodities. They don't want to be seen as successes or failures that you either are going to give a pathway to or sell because it's very dispassionate. It's very data-driven. They're just numbers within your algorithm. They want to be seen as human beings. So that's where the smaller clubs that are not part of multi-club might be able to offer a more family-orientated environment. They might have smaller squads. You might get more game time. You might feel more settled. But ultimately, multi-club is allowing bigger clubs and brands to expand and globalize. And the more reach they have, the more power they have in areas like recruitment and data gathering, in pathways, the more resources they have, the more collective strength they have. So as a result, they don't just become, in Manchester City's case, a Premier League club. They become a global brand through the group. And that is really difficult to compete with because it's sustainable, it's diverse, it's powerful, it's consistent. You're really going to feel it's quite a safe bet to enter at that level. There's so much going on here. Appreciate you coming on to, you know, untangle so many of these, these issues. Ben Jacobs, thanks so much for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Always happy to come on. Keep up the good work. That's all for today. Thanks again to Ben Jacobs for coming on the show, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We'll see you tomorrow.